0: The effect of the preaching is not in the preacher's hands, but in God's hands. And it often happens that the sermons which seemed unsuccessful were strengthened and made effective by the Holy Spirit. Yet while it is certain that the non-elect will not turn to God, repent of their sins, and live good, moral lives, it is nevertheless their duty to do so. Though members of a fallen race, they are still free moral agents responsible for their character and conduct. God is therefore perfectly consistent in commanding them to repent. For him not to do so would be for him to give up the claims of his law. We commonly hear the idea expressed that man is under no obligation to do anything for which he has not full and perfect ability in himself. The reasoning, however, is fallacious, for man labors under a self-acquired inability. He was created upright and voluntarily sank himself into sin. He is therefore as responsible as is the person who, in order to escape military service, deliberately mutilates a hand or an eye. If inability canceled obligation, then Satan with his inherent depravity would be under no obligation to do right, and his fiendish enmity toward God and men would be no sin sinners in general would then be lifted above the moral law. In conclusion, it may be further said that even in regard to the non-elect, the preaching is not altogether vain, for they are thus made the objects of general restraining and directing influences which prevent them from sinning as much as they otherwise would. Chapter 22, page 287 that it contradicts the universalistic scripture passages. 1. The terms will and all. 2. The gospel is for Jews and Gentiles alike. 3. The term world is used in various senses. 4. General considerations. 1. The term wish, will, and all. It may be asked, is not the doctrine of predestination flatly contradicted by the scriptures which declare that Christ died for all men or for the whole world and that God wills the salvation of all men? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul refers to God our Savior who would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And the word all we are dogmatically informed by our opponents must mean every human being in ezekiel 33:11 we read as i live saith the lord jehovah i have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live and in second peter chapter 3 verse 9 we read that god is not wishing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance the King James Version reads, Not willing that any should perish. These verses simply teach that God is benevolent and that He does not delight in the sufferings of His creatures any more than a human father delights in the punishment which he must sometimes inflict upon his son. God does not decretively will the salvation of all men, no matter how much He may desire it. And if any verse is taught that He decretively willed or intended the salvation of all men they would contradict those other parts of the Scripture which teach that God sovereignly rules and that it is His purpose to leave some to be punished. The word will is used in different senses in Scripture and in our everyday conversation. It is sometimes used in the sense of decree or purpose and sometimes in the sense of desire or wish. A righteous judge does not will, desire, that anyone should be hanged or sentenced to, to prison, yet at the same time he wills, pronounces sentence or decrees, that the guilty person shall be thus punished. In the same sense, and for sufficient reasons, a man may will or decide to have a limb removed or an eye taken out, even though he certainly does not desire it. The Greek words theo and bulimai, which are sometimes translated will are also used in the sense of desire or wish. That is, Jesus said to the mother of James and John, What wouldest thou? Matthew twenty, verse twenty one. Of the scribes it is said, they desire to walk in long robes. Luke twenty, verse forty six. Certain of the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we would see a sign from thee, Matthew twelve, thirty eight. Paul said, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that I might instruct others also than ten thousand words in the tongue. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 19. In like manner the word all is unmistakably used in different senses in Scripture. In some cases it certainly does not mean every individual. That is, of John the Baptist, it was said, And there went out unto him all the country of Judea, and all they of Jerusalem, and they were baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Mark 1 verse 5. After Peter and John had healed the lame man at the door of the temple, we read that all men glorified God for that which was done. Acts 4 verse 21. Jesus told his disciples that they would be hated of all men for his name's sake. Luke 21, verse 17. Paul was accused of teaching all men everywhere against the people and the law in this place, the temple. Acts 21.28 When Jesus said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. John 12.32 He plainly meant not every individual of mankind, for history shows that not every individual has been drawn to him. He certainly does not draw the many millions of heathens who die in utter ignorance of the true God. What he meant was that a large multitude of all nations and classes would be saved, and this is what we see coming to pass. In Hebrews 2.9 we read that Jesus tasted death for every man. The original Greek, however, does not use the word man here at all, but simply says for every So in principle, if the meaning is not to be limited to those who are actually saved, why limit it to men? Why not include the fallen angels, even the devil himself, and the irrational animals? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22 is probably the one verse most often quoted by Arminians to refute Calvinism. There we read, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The verse is, however, entirely irrelevant. This is from Paul's famous resurrection chapter, and the context makes it plain that he is not talking about life in this age, whether physical or spiritual, but about the resurrection life. Verses 20 and 21 read, But now hath Christ been raised from the dead, the first fruits of them that are asleep? For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Then follows verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In that he refers not to a regeneration or a making alive in this present world, but to the new life which is given in the resurrection is made clear by what follows immediately in verse 23 and 24. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then they that are Christ's, at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall deliver up the kingdom of God, even the Father, etc. Christ is the first to enter into the resurrection life. Then, when he comes, his people also enter into the resurrection life. Then comes the end, that is, the end of the world, and the introduction of heaven in its fullness And what Paul says is that at that time a glorious resurrection life will become a reality for all those who are in Christ. This is possible because Christ is their federal head and representative. Through His power all of His people shall be raised to newness of life with Him. And this point is illustrated by the well understood fact that the race fell in Adam who acted as the federal head and representative of the entire race. What Paul says in effect is this, For as all born in Adam die, so also all born in Christ shall be made alive. Verse 22 then refers not to something past, nor to something present, but to something future, and it has no bearing whatever on the Armenian Calvinistic Controversy. It was not the whole of mankind which was equally loved of God and promiscuously redeemed by Christ. John's hymn of praise, Unto him that loveth us and loosed us from our sins by his blood, and he made us to be a kingdom, to be priests unto his God and Father, Revelation 1.5, evidently proceeds on the hypothesis of a definite election and a limited atonement since God's love was the cause and the blood of Christ the efficacious means of their redemption. The declaration that Christ died for all is made clearer by the song which the redeemed now sing before the throne of the Lamb. Thou wast slain and didst purchase unto God with thy blood men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Revelation 5.9 The word all must be understood to mean all the elect, all his church, all those whom the Father hath given to the Son, etc., not all men universally and every man individually. The redeemed host will be made up of men from all classes and conditions of life, of princes and peasants, of rich and poor, of bond and free, of male and female, of young and old, of Jews and Gentiles, men of all nations and races from north to south, From east to west. 2. The gospel is for Jews and Gentiles alike. In some instances, the word all is used in order to teach that the gospel is for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. Through the many centuries of their past history, the Jews had, with few exceptions, been the exclusive recipients of God's saving grace. They had greatly abused their privileges as the chosen people. They supposed that the same distinction would be kept up in the Messianic era, and they were always inclined to appropriate the Messiah exclusively to themselves. So rigid was the Pharisaic exclusivism that the Gentiles were called strangers, dogs, common, unclean, and it was not lawful for a Jew to keep company with or have any dealings with a Gentile. John chapter four, verse nine. Acts 10 verse 28 and chapter 11 verse 3. The salvation of the Gentiles was a mystery which had not been made known in other ages. Ephesians 3 verses 4 through 6. Colossians 1 verse 27. It was for that reason that Peter was taken to task by the church at Jerusalem after he had preached the gospel to Cornelius. And we can almost hear the gasp of wonder in the explanation of the leaders when after Peter's defense they said, Then to the Gentiles also hath God granted repentance unto life. Acts 11 verse 18. To understand what a revolutionary idea this was, read Acts chapter 10 verses 1 through chapter 11 verse 18. Consequently, this was a truth which it was then peculiarly necessary to enforce, and it was brought out in the fullest and strongest terms, Paul was to be a witness unto all men, that is, to Jews and Gentiles alike, of what he had seen and heard, Acts 22, verse 15. As used in this sense, the word all has no reference to individuals, but means mankind in general. 3. The term world is used in various senses. When it is said that Christ died not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2, For then he came to save the world, John 12.47. The meaning is that not merely Jews but Gentiles also are included in his saving work. The world as a world, or the race as a race, is to be redeemed. When John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, he was not giving a theological discourse to saints, but preaching to sinners, In the unnatural thing then would have been for him to have discussed limited atonement or any other doctrine which could have been understood only by saints. We are told that John the Baptist came for a witness, that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. John 1.7 But to say that John's ministry afforded an opportunity for every human being to have faith in Christ would be unreasonable. John never preached to the Gentiles. His mission was to make Christ manifest to Israel, John one thirty one, and in the nature of the case only a limited number of the Jews could be brought to hear him. Sometimes the term world is used when only a large part of the world is meant, as when it is said that the devil is the deceiver of the whole world, or that the whole earth wonders after the beast, Revelation 13.3. If in 1 John 5.19 we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in the evil one, the author meant every individual of mankind, then he and those to whom he wrote were also in the evil one, and he contradicted himself in saying that they were of God. Sometimes this term means only a relatively small part of the world, as when Paul wrote to the new Christian church at Rome, that their faith was proclaimed throughout the whole world, Romans 1.8. None but believers would praise those Romans for their faith in Christ, and in fact the world at large did not even know that such a church existed at Rome. Hence Paul meant only the believing world or the Christian church, which was a comparatively insignificant part of the real world. Shortly before Jesus was born, there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. And all went to enroll themselves. Luke 2, verses 1 and 3. Yet we know that the writer had in mind only that comparatively small part of the world which was controlled by Rome. When it was said that on the day of Pentecost they were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Acts 2, 5. Only those nations which were immediately known to the Jews were intended, for so verses 9-11 through 11 list those which were represented. Paul says that the gospel was preached in all creation under heaven, Colossians 1.23. The goddess Diana of the Ephesians was said to have been worshipped by all Asia and the world, Acts 19.27. We are told that the famine which came over Egypt in Joseph's time extended to all the earth, and that all countries came into Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, Genesis 41 verse 57. In ordinary conversation we often speak of the business world, the educational world, the political world, etc., but we do not mean that every person in the world is a businessman, or educated, or a politician. When we say that a certain automobile manufacturer sells automobiles to everybody, we do not mean that he actually sells to every individual, but that he sells to everyone who is willing to pay his price. We may say of one lone teacher of literature in a city that he teaches everybody, not that everybody studies under him, but that all of those who study at all study under him. The Bible is written in plain language of the people and must be understood in that way. Verses like John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have eternal life give abundant proof that the redemption which the Jews thought to monopolize is universal as to space. God so loved the world not a little portion of it, but the world as a whole, that He gave His only begotten Son for its redemption. And not only the extensity, but the intensity of God's love is made plain by the little adverb, soul. God so loved the world, in spite of its wickedness, that He gave His only begotten Son to die for it. But where is the oft-boasted proof of its universality as to individuals, This verse is sometimes pressed to such an extreme that God is represented as too loving to punish anybody and so full of mercy that He will not deal with men according to any rigid standard of justice, regardless of their deserts. The attentive reader, by comparing this verse with other scripture, will see that some restriction is to be placed on the word world. One writer has asked, Did God love Pharaoh? Romans 9.17 Did He love the Amalekites? Exodus 17.14 Did He love the Canaanites, whom He commanded to be exterminated without mercy? Deuteronomy 20.16 Did He love the Amorites and the Moabites, whom He commanded not to be received into the congregation forever? Deuteronomy 23.3 Does He love the workers of iniquity? Psalm 5.5 Does he love the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction which he endures with much long-suffering? Romans 9.22 Did he love Esau? Romans 9.13 4. General Considerations Nor does the prophetic invitation, Ho! every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, Isaiah 55.1 and other references to the same effect contradict this view. For the majority of mankind are not thirsty but dead, dead in sin, hopeless and willing servants of Satan, and in no state to hunger and thirst after righteousness. The gracious invitation to come to Christ is rejected, not because there is anything outside their own person which prevents their coming, but because until they are graciously given a new birth through the agency of the Holy Spirit that they have neither the will nor the desire to accept. It is God who gives this will and excites their desires in those who are predestined to life. Romans 11:7 and 8, chapter 9, verse 18. He that will may come, but a person who is completely immersed in heathenism, for instance, has no chance to hear the gospel offer and so cannot possibly come. Faith cometh by hearing, and where there is no faith there can be no salvation." Neither can that person come who has heard the gospel but who is still governed by principles and desires which cause him to hate it. He is a bondservant to sin and acts accordingly. He that will may escape from the burning building while the stairway is safe, but he that is asleep or he that does not think the fire serious enough to flee from hasn't the will and perishes in the flames. Says Clark, Arminians are fond of quoting whosoever will, let him come, or whosoever believeth, implying that belief and decision are wholly the acts of man, and that this is an offset to sovereign election. True as these statements are, they do not touch the point at issue. Miles deeper down than this lies the vital point, that is, how does a man become willing? If a man is willing, he can certainly choose, but the sinful nature adverse to God must be made willing, by God's word, by God's grace, by God's spirit, or by sovereign intervention. Strikingly speaking, these are not divine offers indiscriminately made to all mankind, but are addressed to a chosen people and are incidentally heard by others. If the words of First Timothy 2.4 that God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth be taken in the Arminian sense, it follows either that God is disappointed in his wishes or that all men without exception are saved. Furthermore, the doctrine which imputes disappointment to deity contradicts that class of scripture passages which teach the sovereignty of God. His will in this respect has been the same through the centuries. And if he had willed that the Gentiles should be saved, why was it that he confined the knowledge of the way of salvation to the narrow limits of Judea? Surely no one will deny that he might as easily have made known his gospel to the Gentiles as to the Jews. Where he has not provided the means, we may be sure that he has not designed the ends. The reply of Augustine to those who advanced this objection in his day is worth quoting. When our Lord complains that though he wishes to gather the children of Jerusalem as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but she would not, are we to consider that the will of God was overpowered by a number of weak men, so that he who was Almighty God could not do what he wished or will to do? If so, what is to become of that omnipotence by which he did whatsoever pleased him in heaven and in earth? Moreover, who will be found so unreasonable as to say that God cannot convert the evil wills of men, which he pleases, when he pleases, and as he pleases, to good? Now when he does this, he does it in mercy, and when he does it not in judgment, he doeth it not. Verses such as 1 Timothy 2.4, it seems, are best understood not to refer to men individually, but as teaching the general truth that God is benevolent, and that he does not delight in the sufferings and death of his creatures. It may be further remarked that if the universalistic passages are taken in an evangelical sense, and applied as widely as the Arminians wish to apply them, they will prove universal salvation a result which is contradicted by Scripture and which, in fact, is not held by Arminians themselves. As was stated in the chapter on limited atonement, there is a sense in which Christ did die for mankind in general. No distinction is made as to age or country, character or condition. The race fell in Adam and the race taken in the collective sense is redeemed in Christ The work of Christ arrested the immediate execution of the penalty of sin as it related to the whole race. His work also brings many temporal and physical blessings to mankind in general and lays the foundation for the offer of the gospel to all who hear it. These are admitted to be the results of his work and to apply to all mankind. Yet this does not mean that he died equally and with the same design for all it is true that some verses taken in themselves do seem to imply the Arminian position. This, however, would reduce the Bible to a mass of contradictions, for there are other verses which teach predestination, inability, election, perseverance, etc., and which cannot by any legitimate means be interpreted in harmony with Arminianism. Hence, in these cases, the meaning of the sacred writer can be determined only by the analogy of Scripture. Since the Bible is the Word of God, it is self-consistent. Consequently, if we find a passage which in itself is capable of two interpretations, one of which harmonizes with the rest of the Scriptures, while the other does not, we are duty-bound to accept the former. It is a recognized principle of interpretation that the more obscure passages are to be interpreted in the light of clearer passages, and not vice versa. We have shown that the evidence which is brought forward in the defense of Arminianism, in which at first sight appears to possess considerable plausibility, can legitimately be given an interpretation which harmonizes with Calvinism. In view of the many Calvinistic passages in the absence of any genuine Arminian passages, we unhesitantly assert that the Calvinistic system is the true system. This is the true universalism of the scriptures, the universal Christianization of the world and the complete defeat of the forces of spiritual wickedness. This, of course, does not mean that every individual will be saved, for many are unquestionably lost. Just as in the salvation of the individual much possible service to Christ is lost and many sins are committed through the period of incomplete salvation, so it is in the salvation of the world. A considerable number are lost, yet the process of salvation is to end in a great triumph and our eyes are yet to behold the glorious spectacle of a saved world. The words of Dr. Warfield are very appropriate here. The human race attains the goal for which it was created, and sin does not snatch it out of God's hand. The primal purpose of God with it is fulfilled, and through Christ the race of man, though fallen into sin, is recovered to God and fulfills its original destiny. So while Armenianism offers us a spurious universalism, which is at best a universalism of opportunity, Calvinism offers us the true universalism in the salvation of the race. And only the Calvinist, with his emphasis on the doctrines of sovereign election and efficacious grace, can look to the future confidently expecting to see a redeemed world. Section 4, Chapter 23, Page 299 Salvation by Grace 1. Man's Ill Desert 2. God may give or withhold grace as He pleases. 3. Salvation not to be earned by man. 4. Scripture proof. 5. Further remarks. The Bible declares that the salvation of sinful men is a matter of grace. From Ephesians 1, verses 7-10, through we learn that the primary purpose of God in the work of redemption was to display the glory of this divine attribute so that through succeeding ages the intelligent universe might admire it as it is made known through his unmerited love and boundless goodness to guilty, vile, helpless creatures. Accordingly, all men are represented as sunk in a state of sin and misery, from which they are utterly unable to deliver themselves. When they deserved only God's wrath and curse, he determined that he would graciously provide redemption For them by sending His own eternal Son to assume their nature and guilt, and to obey and suffer in their stead, and His Holy Spirit to apply the redemption purchased by the Son. On the same representative principle by which Adam's sin is imputed to us, that is, set to our account in such a way that we are held fully responsible for it and suffer the consequences of it, our sin in its turn is imputed to Christ and His righteousness is imputed to us. This is briefly yet clearly expressed in the Shorter Catechism, which says, Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein He pardoneth all our sins, and accepteth us as righteous in His sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, and received by faith alone. Answer to question 33. We should keep clearly in mind the distinction between the two covenants, that of works under which Adam was placed and which resulted in the fall of the race into sin, and that of grace under which Christ was sent as a Redeemer. As stated in another connection, the Arminian system makes no essential distinction in principle between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, unless it be that God now offers salvation on lower terms. Instead of demanding perfect obedience, he accepts only such faith and evangelical obedience as the crippled sinner is able to render. In that system, the burden of obedience is still thrown upon man himself, and his salvation in the first place depends upon his own works. The word grace, in its proper sense, means the free and undeserved love or favor of God exercised toward the undeserving, toward sinners. It is something which is given irrespective of any worthiness in man and to introduce works or merit into any part of the scheme violates its nature and frustrates its design. Just because it is grace it is not given on the basis of preceding merits. As the very name imports it is necessarily gratuitous and since man is enslaved to sin until it is given all the merits that he can have prior to it are bad merits and deserve only punishment, not gifts or favor. Whatever of good men have, that God has given, and what they have not, why, of course, God has not given it. And since grace is given irrespective of preceding merits, it is therefore sovereign, and it is bestowed only on those whom God has selected for its reception. It is this sovereignty of grace, and not its foresight, or the preparation for it, which places men in God's hands and suspends salvation absolutely on His unlimited mercy. In this we find the basis for His election or rejection of particular persons. Because of His absolute moral perfection, God requires spotless purity and perfect obedience in His intelligent creatures. This perfection is provided in Christ's spotless righteousness being imputed to them, and when God looks upon the redeemed, He sees them clothed with the spotless robe of Christ's righteousness, not with anything of their own. We are distinctly told that Christ suffered as a substitute, the just for the unjust, and when man is encouraged to think that he owes to some power or art of his own, that salvation which in reality is all of grace, God is robbed of part of his glory. By no stretch of the imagination can a man's good works in this life be considered a just equivalent of the blessings of eternal life. Benjamin Franklin, though by no means a Calvinist, expressed this idea well when he wrote, He that for giving a drink of water to a thirsty person should expect to be paid with a good plantation would be modest in his demands compared with those who think they deserve heaven for the little good they do on earth. We are in fact nothing but receivers. We never bring any adequate reward to God. We are always receiving from Him and shall be unto all eternity. 2. God may give or withhold grace as He pleases. Since God has provided this redemption or atonement at His own cost, it is His property and He is absolutely sovereign in choosing who shall be saved through it. There is nothing more steadily emphasized in the scripture doctrine of redemption than its absolutely gracious character. Hence, by their separation from the original mass, not through any works of their own, but only through the free grace of God, the vessels of mercy see how great a gift has been bestowed upon them. It will be found that many who inherit heaven were much worse sinners in this world than were many others who are lost. The doctrine of predestination cuts down every self-righteous imagination which would detract from the glory of God. It convinces the one who is saved that he can only be eternally thankful that God saved him. Hence, in the Calvinistic system, all boasting is excluded, and that honor and glory which belong to God alone is fully preserved. The greatest saint, says Xantius, cannot triumph over the most abandoned sinner, but has led to refer the entire praise of his salvation both from sin and hell to the mere good will and sovereign purpose of God who hath graciously made him to differ from that world which lieth in wickedness. 3. Salvation not to be earned by man All men naturally feel that they should earn their salvation and a system which makes some provision in that regard readily appeals to them. But Paul lays the axe to such reasoning when he says, If there had been a law given which could make alive, verily righteousness would have been of the law. Galatians 3.21 And Jesus said to his disciples, When ye shall have done all the things that are commanded of you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Luke 17.10 Our own righteousness, says Isaiah, is but a polluted garment, or as the King James Version puts it, as filthy rags in the sight of God. Chapter 64, verse 6. And when Isaiah wrote, Ho, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come. Ye buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Chapter 51, verse 1. He invited the penniless, the hungry, the thirsty to come and take possession of and enjoy the provision, free of all cost, as if by right of payment. And to buy without money must mean that it has already been produced and provided at the cost of another. The further we advance in the Christian life, the less we are inclined to attribute any merit to ourselves and the more to thank God for all. The believer not only looks forward to everlasting life, but also looks backward into the anti-mundane eternity and finds in the eternal purpose of divine love the beginning and the firm anchorage of his salvation. If salvation is of grace, as the scriptures so clearly teach, it cannot be of works, whether actual or foreseen. There is no merit in believing, for faith itself is a gift of God. God gives His people an inward working of the Spirit in order that they may believe, and faith is only the act of receiving the proffered gift. It is then only the instrumental cause and not the meritorious cause of salvation. What God loves in us is not our own merits, but His own gift, for His unmerited grace precedes our meritorious works. Grace is not merely bestowed when we pray for it, but grace itself causes us to pray for its continuance and increase. In the book of Acts we find that the very inception of faith itself is assigned to grace, chapter 18, verse 27. Only those who were ordained to eternal life believed, chapter 13, verse 48. And it is God's prerogative to open the heart so that it gives heed to the gospel, chapter 16, verse 14. Faith is thus referred to the counsels of eternity, the events in time being only the outworking. Paul attributes it to the grace of God that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God afore prepared that we should walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. Good works, then, are in no sense the meritorious ground, but rather the fruits and proof of salvation. Luther taught this same doctrine when he said of some that they attribute to free will a very little indeed yet they teach us that by that very little we can attain unto righteousness and grace. Nor do they solve that question why does God justify one and leave another in any other way than by asserting the freedom of the will and saying because the one endeavors and the other does not. And God regards the one for endeavoring and despises the other for his not endeavoring, lest if he did otherwise he should appear to be unjust. It is said that Jeremy Taylor and a companion were once walking down a street in London when they came to a drunk man lying in the gutter. The other man made some disparaging remark about the drunk man, but Jeremy Taylor, pausing and looking at him, said, But for the grace of God, there lies Jeremy Taylor. The spirit which was in Jeremy Taylor is the spirit which should be in every sin-rescued Christian. It was repeatedly taught that Israel owed her separation from the other peoples of the world not to anything good or desirable in herself, but only to God's gracious love faithfully persisted in despite apostasy, sin, and rebellion. Paul says concerning some who would base salvation on their own merits that going about to establish their own righteousness they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God and were therefore not in the church of Christ. He makes it plain that the righteousness of God is given to us through faith and that we enter heaven pleading only the merits of Christ.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books.